I want you to picture in your mind, actually this is an old Peanuts cartoon strip. How many of you remember the Peanuts, you know, with uh, Charlie Brown and Lucy and Linus? Well, there was one particular cartoon strip. It was with Lucy and Linus. It's going back a long uh, time, a number of years. And, and in, in, in the cartoon, in the first frame, there's Linus there. And he's sitting alone and he's watching television. And suddenly in storms Lucy... Uh, demanding, uh, as Lucy, only Lucy could do, demanding that he change the channel to the program that she wants to watch. And, 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 and rather meekly as she comes in, he finally says to her, her she, she, he says to her, what makes you think that you can just walk in and take over? And she blurts out, these five fingers, and puts them into a fist. And he meekly said, what channel do you want? And then Linus walked out of the room just feeling like a, a wimp. And he's looking at his own hand and he says, why can't you guys get organized like that? <laughs> How many of you know there's power in unity? Yeah. <laughs> Someone once wrote a book entitled Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And uh, there is a lot of truth to that. Uh, I remember when I was a child, uh, in, in church, going to junior church, there was a song that we used to sing all the time. Some of you may remember this. I don't think it was just a regional thing. But how many of you remember this, the, the song that went like this? It said, if we all will pull together. Anybody know that one? So Keep going. If we all will pull together, together, together. If we all will pull together, how happy we'll be. Yeah, it goes on. We won't sing the whole thing. I know, I know we want to. For your work is my work, and my work is God's work, and we go all that. And now, see, now as a little boy, we always sing, because uh, when we sing, come here, Jason. This is going to be weird. This is going to be weird. I can tell you that right now. This is going to be weird. But when we were singing that, we were singing that song. We were saying when we all would work together, we'd have to do this. You remember that? And then we, but see, as a boy, I could not wait for the second verse. Because the second verse said, but if we all will fight together. And we got to slap each other. So he kind of flinched there. He's like, what is he doing? Jason, most of the time I don't know what I'm doing. So that's all right. But there's a lot of truth in that song. And the, the reality is that unity is essential if we want to accomplish all that God intends for us personally and all that God intends for us as a church. And so tonight I, I want to just talk for a few minutes about unity and I'm talking about working together. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes that says this. Uh, it, it says in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4, it said, Two people are better than, off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person fails, the other can reach out and help. But if someone who falls uh, alone but, excuse me, but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. And verse 12 says, a person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. So I want to talk about unity for a little bit because it's essential for us. We have great dreams. God, we believe God's given us great vision about what God wants to do in, in Mary and through Restoration Life Church but this I know we'll never get there. One of, the, one of the essential ingredients is unity as a church. So first of all, I want to talk a little bit about what is unity. 
Because sometimes there's a little confusion on that. And I want to say this right off the bat. Unity is not the same as uniformity. Unity is not the same as uniformity. Uniformity says that we all have to be the same. We all have to like the same things. We all have to look alike. Turn your neighbor and say, thank the Lord we don't all look alike. And I I don't know what that means as you say that. Say it in a nice way. (laughs) I did not say turn to them and say, thank God I don't look like you. That's not what I said to say. Do not say that. That would not be Christ-like at all. You know, uniformity says that we all have to conform to the pattern that other people set up, that we have to measure up to the standards that other people have created. Uniformity is this pressure to conform to the pattern of people, of the people around you. And and this is the pressure we experience in the world. How many of you know the world wants uniformity? You know, they make the cry, they cry out diversity, diversity. But the reality is what they really want is uniformity. They say, We don't really want diversity. We want you to believe exactly how we believe and don't say anything different. You know, and if you dare disagree, it's, it's, you know, they're going to jump on you. That's intolerant. And the the shocking thing is the most intolerant people in the world are the ones that cry out for tolerance. They say, you've got to think like us. You must be like us. You must do what we do. But, but that's what the world says. But Paul said, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. A great translation of that phrase, literally, it literally means, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. There's no doubt that the world wants to pressure you into conformity, into its standards. The world, there's this constant pressure trying to squeeze you to be like everybody else and not to be like Christ, but to be like the rest of the world. But if we're, to, if we're honest, we have to admit that the reality is that same pressure exists even with inside the church, but it's only applied in a different way. You know, what I mean is we, we sometimes feel this unspoken pressure to try to live up to the expectations of other people. You know, and we get this thing in us where we like, we think, man, I've just got to be like so-and-so. I've got to be like so-and-so because if I could be like so-and-so, then maybe God could use me. And, and you know what? That's not what God wants. Can I tell you this? If God had wanted another Jason, he would have made another Jason. And somebody said, thank the Lord. I guess it's your night to be picked on, brother. I'm sorry. But we feel that. And we also feel this, this uh, pressure to live up to the expectations of other people in the church. That's what leads to the, to the uh, fact of the way that we like to wear masks in the church. Because we feel the pressure. I've got to live up to this certain expectation. And so when I get to church, I may have had the worst week in the world. But if the expectation is that I'm going to be cheery and, and bubbly when I walk through the door, then I'm going to put on my cheery and bubbly mask and I'm going to play the part when I walk through the door. And, and, and there's this pressure, this idea sometimes in the churches, you know, it's the same thing. You better walk like me. You better talk like me. You better sing like me. You better pray like me. You better preach like me. You better believe everything exactly the way that I believe and if you don't you're just a dirty rotten stinking uh, scoundrel maybe we don't say it quite that strongly but uniformity the reality has nothing to do with the gospel it has nothing to do with being unified as a church in fact the reality is the beauty of the body of christ is that he calls people 
out of completely different and seemingly incompatible lifestyles, and he binds us together with the love of Jesus that overflows in our lives. That he can take people that in, under any other circumstance in the world would never be together, would never come together, would never get along, and they become brother and sister in Christ. You know, I, I, when I was pastoring in Reno, sometime I'll tell you the whole story about how God opened up the door and we were able to minister into a, a whole sub, subculture of Reno. Um, you, you, you ever heard of the group Sublime? Somebody, who, who's heard of Sublime? Uh, I actually met the drummer of Sublime through this whole process and got to share the gospel with him. Uh, but, but we had this whole process, this whole thing that was going on, and, and, uh, and I kind of got introduced into this group of people that, uh, listen, uh, I, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm, I'll, I'll just put it like this. There were people that had tattoos that I didn't even know there were places. You know, I mean, they were there, there, there's, there, there were people there that if I was walking down the street, I'd move to the other side because I'd be scared of these people. They were some scary folk in there. And I mean, they had not, they did not know. I've got, I've got stories I can't even tell you from the pulpit, frankly. But, uh, but they, they, you know, they didn't know anything about Jesus. They didn't know anything about God. And, but, but anyway, there was an accident that, that I was there and was able to minister to this group of people as, and they would come in. Somebody that was very popular among their, their group had gotten severely injured. And, and uh, one, another time I'll tell you the whole story of all of that what, that took place. and It'll fit better in a different message or something. But, but through that process, the Lord began to save some of these people and they started coming to church. And, uh, and as they walked into the church, they don't look like church folk. Can I tell you that? And, and I'll be honest with you, when, when it all started, I was a little bit nervous. When I knew they were coming into service, I was a little bit nervous because we had people there. We had, uh, in fact, in the church, we had uh, the founding pastor and his wife were still in the church. I was actually, the church was like, I don't know how old, 24, 30 years old, somewhere in there. And I was only the third pastor in the history of the church. And the founding pastor was still there and his wife. And they were... Now, I don't mean, don't mean this in the wrong, I don't mean this in a bad way, but they were old school Pentecostal. You know what I'm talking about? And I had no idea, I had no idea how they were going to react. I had no idea. Sister Caudell was her name. I didn't know how she was going to respond, how she was going to act when one of these people walked in and she saw them. And, and I mean, I didn't know. She may, may have never seen anybody that looked like that. You know, there was... Were, Pierced in more places than any person, any person should ever put their body through, you know, but, but I mean, all these things, just wild, hard looking people. They were hard people, but the gospel began to soften them. And I remember the first time, the first Sunday they came into church and I remember just, just being amazed at the grace of God as, as they came in and sat down and you want to know who the first person was that went up and talked to them? It was Sister Caudell. She walked up to them and just loved on them and then invited them. She ended up sitting right there with them, sitting with them during service. And the Spirit of God brought them together. Listen, there is no other place in the world that I would ever see Sister Caudell sitting next to any of those folks from that group. It's only in the church. 
And that's the beauty of the body of Christ is that he takes us from different backgrounds and, and what, in, what seems to be completely incompatible lifestyles. And he says, now I'm going to give you common ground. And now because you both have Jesus, now because you both love him, now because you're both in the body of Christ, you are no longer outcast and separate. Now you are together and I'm going to put a love in your heart that you've never known you could have. That's the beauty of it. That's why uniformity is actually the enemy of what, what God wants to do. It's the enemy of the work of the Spirit. Yeah. You know, you know, unity is not about being the same. But it's about being united by something bigger than us. By being, it's about being united by something bigger than our past. Bigger than our prejudices. Being united by something bigger than anything else that would divide us. I love this verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And we like to stop there and say, Yeah, that's right. Amen, Paul. But we, we need to read the next verse. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. He's saying... You are no different than the worst sinner that walks through the door. The only thing that makes you different is that God has cleaned you up. That's it. Listen to me. That is us. Such were some of us. We have been forgiven so much. We have received so much grace and so much love that we are united by something that is so much bigger than we are. We are very, very different. Everybody in this room, we are very different in how we live and who we are and the gifts and the abilities that we have. But, but, but the, the unity that's, that God wants to bring to us will be that much more powerful. It'll be that much of a stronger testimony to the world when they see the diversity coming into unity in the love and the grace of Christ. Paul said in Galatians 3, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Unity is being bound together by the gospel in gratitude to God so that, here's what unity is, so that we can all pull together in the same direction. So why, why is unity important? Well, it's first of all, it's important because it's God's will that people should live, that his people should live in unity. Listen to what Jesus prayed in John 17. He said, I'm praying not only for these disciples, not just the 12 that are there with him, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's us. We're included in that. I pray that they, will all, that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they, be, may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. Now, I want you to understand what's going on here. This is Jesus at the very end of his, of his ministry 
uh, on earth, the very end of his life on earth here. And in this moment, he's beginning to feel the weight of the pressure of what is about to take place. He's beginning to feel the pressure of the pending crucifixion. And the weight is weighing on his shoulders. And he gets by himself and he spends some time with, with the Father in prayer. And when he begins to pray for us, he, he, he begins to pray. He Listen, he does not pray. He does not say, oh God, I pray for those that will believe. Just Lord, just let them have an easy, easy go of it. That's not what he prays. He didn't pray that we would always be comfortable. He didn't pray that we'd always be well fed. He didn't pray that we would be wealthy and wise. That's not what he prayed for. That's not what was most important on his mind. He didn't pray that we would never suffer persecution. He never didn't pray that we would never suffer pain. He didn't pray that we would never suffer loss. He prayed that we would be one. Unity was so important to Jesus in that moment that he took time to intercede for you and for me that our hearts would be bound together so that the mission that he is about to die for, the cause that he's about to die for, would continue to move forward. Jesus prayed for unity because he knew that divisions and factions would make the church powerless and ineffective. Listen, uh, um, maybe one day I'll preach a sermon, but over the years I have noticed uh, this, I'll just put it this way. The enemy is not particularly creative, but he doesn't have to be because we keep falling for the same things. But, but anytime, anytime God begins to work in a church, anytime he starts to do something there are certain things that you can count on. I, I know it's going to happen as a pastor. When I see the Spirit of God moving, I know the enemy is going to try to act against that. See, here's the deal. When we're just kind of sitting back and we're just ignoring the voice of the Spirit and we're not doing anything for God, He does not care about us. At that moment in time, He's like, just let Him go. They're not doing any damage to the kingdom of darkness. Just let Him stay where they are. I'm just, He's perfectly content for you to go to church and sing your songs and never do anything more than that. But you know what? When we begin to rise up, when the Spirit of God begins to move in our hearts, when we begin to, to reach out to the community, when we, be, as a church, begin to do things, when we begin to, to reach out under the anointing of the Spirit of God, then He is going to rise up Himself and He's going to begin to fight against that. But here's what I want you to know. The very first thing that He always does, it, I have never seen it any different than this. The very first thing He does is He tries to bring division to the people of God. Every time. Here, and why is, and listen, that's important for us to know. Because we're believing God to do some great things. He's beginning to move. He's beginning to touch lives. He's beginning to do some new things. And he's beginning to, to move us forward as a church. And right now, there's a spirit of unity. But I want you to understand, we are, I don't want you to be ignorant of his devices. He will come and try to bring division. And I'm, I, wanna, I want you to understand this. He will do it in such a way that you feel perfectly justified in standing in division. You will feel, in fact, you will feel he will make it so that you will believe if you fall, in, in, if you fall for his lie, you will believe that you are actually doing the work of God by creating division in the church. And you say, That's, that just doesn't seem possible. I have seen it 
with my own eyes over and over again. So I'm telling you this because I want you to understand what the enemy is going to try to do. Let's just get this right out in the open. You are going to get offended. Didn't get me any amens on that one. Someone is going to do something you don't like. I'm going to do something you don't like. One of the deacons is going to do something you don't like. We're going to make a decision that you don't like. You one way or another, you're going to be offended by someone or you're going to be hurt by someone. And it's that moment in time that you're going to have to make a choice. And you're going to say, is, is my uh, uh, sense of justice, is my feeling, is, is what I want more important than the mission of God in this church? Because if it is more important, then feel free to push forward and cause division by lashing back or, or getting, you know what we do, we... We, we start getting people on our side. We start divvying up, you know. And, well, did you, hear about, did you hear about what the deacons did? You hear about the decision they made? I don't think that's right. What do you think? You know all you're doing? All you're doing is sowing seeds of division. And you're trying to get people on your side. You're trying to be preemptive in your attack and trying to get things the way that you want them to be. We have to be careful. We've got to guard our, our unity as we move forward. Here's the reality. The devil knows that if he can get us focused on our differences, because we're focused on our differences, we're not going to be looking at Jesus. And our attention will be diverted away from the gospel. So that's important. Unity also allows us to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians said, uh, Paul wrote this, when you follow the, the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear, sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, oh here we go, listen to these, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other things like these. These are the very things the enemy tries to bring in. He says, let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. When the flesh begins to get the better of us, because that's what happens when we get offended, when we get hurt, then the flesh begins to get the better of us. And we begin to that, give in to that fleshly desire to somehow get revenge or to hold unforgiveness or to, or to get people on our side. When that begins to get the better of us, when we begin to give in to that, what happens is we begin to give birth to all kinds of evil, including what he says there, dissension and division. The reality is we can never walk in the Spirit as long as we're walking in the flesh. They cannot coexist. In fact, Paul says, if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the works of the flesh. He says it in verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We cannot walk in the flesh and walk in the spirit at the same time. And that means that if, if division comes in, if I'm part of creating or part of, of continuing division within the body of Christ or even, even within two members of the body of Christ, then that means that I'm walking in the flesh and I cannot walk in the spirit if that's what I'm doing, if, I, if we're divided in our hearts. So it's important. So what does unity do? Another question, what does unity do? Well, this is a great one. Unity lightens the load. 
It lightens the load. You know, we're able to support one another through hard times. You know, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But I can predict this. For your life, for my life, for the church, for every one of us. Hard times will come. Isn't that a reality of living in a broken world? We live in a world that is broken. And there are things that happen that are out of our control. And there are times when maybe we will even stumble and fall. But with unity, when we're working together, as we read from that passage in Ecclesiastes, then we have somebody there to pick us up. How many of you have ever been in that place in your life where you need somebody to help you get up off the ground? There are times when we just don't have the strength to stand on our own. And that's when we need the strength of the body of Christ that comes from unity. Second thing unity does is we're stronger in battle when our forces are combined. You know what? The Lord gave us a lot of promises, didn't he? One of those promises, however, is not that it would be easy. He never promised it'd be easy. In fact, he pretty much promised the opposite. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. How many of you are putting that on your coffee cup and claiming that in the mornings, you know? <laughs> I claim your promise, oh God, give me tribulation today. Lord, I'm just using that illustration. <laughs> I want to make that clear here. Let me ask you a question. Did you think it would be easy to become the person, the man or the woman of God that he wants you to be? And do do you think it will be easy for us to become the church that he wants us to be? It's not something that just happens. It's not something that just comes easily. It's like we wake up one morning, it's like, oh, look, everything has changed. Everything is different. Everything is wonderful. And, you know, we skip down the aisle singing praise songs. The reality is, as we move forward, the enemy is going to fight tooth and nail. And as you move forward, the enemy is going to fight you tooth and nail. But, but though one may be overpowered, the Bible says, two can defend themselves. And there's great power in strength and unity. You see it all through Scripture. I mean, think about it. Uh, way back in the Tower of Babel, what, they, they all got together and they were all unified in purpose. And they were building this tower. And, and God himself said, If they are united like this, nothing will be impossible for them. There is power in unity. In the New Testament, Jesus said, wherever two or three agree together as touching any one thing, there's power in unity. And when we are together, when we're walking this road together, even though we have different paths and different things that we're called to do, we're still walking the road together. We find that there is great power and strength when we are unified in our spirits. Number three. We can accomplish more when we are unified and working together. He said, two are, the scripture says two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. We can work more efficiently when we work together. Now, just a little over a month ago, my family and I pulled into town in a great big truck pulling a, pulling a car behind it. And that night... We, we backed that, well, I didn't back it up. Somebody else who could back it up by that tree there that I, I, that I couldn't even see. Um, they would back that truck up to the house. And there was a great big group of people 
that started carrying things off of that truck. You know what? That got done a whole lot faster than if I had gotten there and said, it's all right, I'll do it, I'll, I'll take care of it myself. First of all, you'd have thought, we have invited a lunatic to be our pastor. <laughs> and you would have been right. But the reality is when everybody starts grabbing things and when the, the parts that were heavy, we had more than one guy. We had multiple people grabbing a hold and, and it made the load a little bit lighter. I can remember when we were in Twin Falls, Idaho, every year we did this big singing Christmas tree production. We had to clear off the whole, the whole platform and, and add these extensions to make it bigger and all these things. And, and we had this, this baby grand piano on the platform that had to come off the platform every year when we did this thing. And I can tell you this, we would get a group of guys and we'd all be surrounding all the way around this, this baby grand piano. Have you ever tried to lift a baby grand piano? If you, if you haven't, don't. This <laughs> is my word of advice to you. They are heavy. And, and, but the thing was, I would get there and this group of guys would be around and everybody would say, one, two, three, and we'd all lift. And I remember standing there thinking, I'm not doing anything. I was. I was doing my part. But the weight and the load of it was distributed among all of us. And you know what? When we are working together, what happens is that the weight and the load of the ministry that needs to be done is going to be distributed among us. And the, the load that each of us will carry will feel a little bit lighter. But the key is in all of this that each of us must pull our own weight. There's, there's a principle. It's called, the, it's called the Pareto principle. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. But it says this, that 20, talking generally speaking, but specifically in the church, the principle is that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And 80% of the people do the other 20% of the work. I'm here to tell you this. The 20% or the pastor or the staff cannot do it alone. There is too much to be done. And what we do when we do that is that we limit our ability, we limit our reach, we limit what we can do as a church because if, if we're going to be carrying 80% of the load, Jason, then the load that's going to be carried is going to be a lot smaller than if everybody grabs hold. It's just, it's just common sense. There's too much to be done. And when, when, when we're functioning that way, when we try to work that way as a church, What's going to happen is that something, or even worse, someone, is going to be left out. It's not going to be done. When, a, when just a few people try to do all the work, there's a couple things that happen. First of all, people get beat up. I've been in that place in my life where I was trying to do everything myself, and it just beat me up. It beat me up emotionally. It beat me up spiritually. It beat me up physically. The other thing that happens is that people get burned out. Everyone in this church needs to discover the ministry God has designed you for. Uh, find where you fit and pull your own weight. Because the reality is, and this sounds very strong, but I believe this with my whole heart. If you are not involved in ministry, then you are cheating this church and you are cheating this community. The Holy Spirit has given us the... You've got to hear this. This is important. The Holy Spirit has given us already the people with the gifts 
and abilities and passions and personalities and experiences needed to accomplish the work that he wants to do. And as we do those things, he will bring in new people with new experiences and gifts and abilities and passions and personalities so that we can continue to grow and expand. And if you aren't, missing, if you aren't involved in ministry, then you are missing the point of your salvation. You're missing the point of what he's trying to do. And let me tell you this, you're missing God. You're missing out. But if you'll get busy doing what God called you to do, the reality is there won't be time to worry about the things that eat away at us when we sit around in our idleness. You know what? The people who gossip and complain the most are usually the people that do the least. Therefore, they have the most time to gossip and complain. If we'll get busy doing what God calls us to do, we won't have time for that mess. God wants to use you to touch the lives of people. You have a job to do here in this church and community. You have been placed in this body of believers for this point in history, for this point in time. And your entire life up until now has been God's training ground to prepare you for the work that he has for you to do right now. And right now, as you're walking through and doing those things that he's called you to do, you are now being trained for greater ministries if you're being faithful into that place of ministry God has called you to, and he will lead you to greater things down the road. But it starts by being faithful where you are now. Now, these are all great results of of unity, but maybe the most important uh, question of all is how can we nurture unity in our church? How can we preserve unity? How can we move forward unified? Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, says this. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from His love, any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the, to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the father i want you to hear some of the things that he's teaching us here number one how do we find unity how do we preserve unity number one unity is found in shared purpose unity is found in shared purpose we need to remember this we are all on the same side You know, when that moment comes that you are offended, that you're hurt, you've got to remember, we're all on the same side. The people around you are not your enemies. The people who hurt you are not your enemies. We are brothers and sisters. We are family. How many of you have ever had a family member hurt you? Anybody here? Did you kick him out of the family? If you did, don't raise your hand because we need to do family counseling or something. No, you're still brothers and sisters. 
We're working toward the same goal. And you know what? And I don't know we can get real complicated with our mission and everything, but let's break it down to the very essence. Our purpose is to lead people to Jesus. That's why we're here. Everything else that we're called to do, all the other, all the other functions of the church, you know, whether it's worship or fellowship or whatever it is, everything else can be accomplished in heaven. But the one thing we cannot do in heaven is reach the lost. This church and all the separate ministries of this church, this is important and this is not something we like to hear sometimes. They do not exist to make you comfortable or to keep you happy. The church exists for your good, but the church is not focused on you. The church exists to equip you to reach other people of the gospel. Paul said in Ephesians 4, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. That means that Pastor Jason and Pastor Mary Beth and I, we're God's gift to you. <laughs> I just had to say that. But it says, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do His work and build up the church, the body of Christ. Did you hear that? Their responsibility is to equip, equip God's people to do His work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. I want to know, is there anybody here that measures up to the full and complete standard of Christ? My hand is not up. That means the work is not done. Paul says that when we become equipped for ministry, when we understand who Jesus really is and we get busy serving other people, then we move toward a unity that leads us into maturity. When we take our eyes off the purpose, we begin to lose perspective. When we forget why we're here. You know, uh, listen, I can tell you this. I, I know of churches that have split over silly things. Maybe you've heard stories of churches that split over the color of the carpet. Listen, if a church splits over the color of the carpet, I guarantee you that is a church that has lost sight of its purpose, why it exists, why it was started there in the first place. Because the church is not there to try to make it a pretty place for you to enjoy when you walk in the doors. I've known of churches even more recently that have, have split over the style of worship. You know what, that, that is a split over a personal preference. And that's a church that has lost sight of the mission, of the very purpose that they were, that they were brought into existence for. And what happens is, when we, begin to, when we take our eyes off of a purpose, we begin to lose perspective. And the first thing that happens is we begin looking in instead of looking out. We begin looking in about what we want and what we like and what we want to, to put in place and what makes us feel good and what we enjoy. And we begin looking in instead of looking out and saying, there's a world out there that needs Jesus and we've been called to reach them. How can we get outside these walls? How can we get up off of our pews and into the streets how can we do this 
But a church that loses sight of our purpose begins looking in instead of looking out. And, and when we begin looking in, what happens is we begin, that's when we get really nitpicky and we start noticing all of the problems and we start realizing all the things that where we fall short. Listen, I want you to know this really clearly. That is not your spiritual gift. There is no special talent in seeing what's wrong. All the deacons, all the pastors, we know what's wrong. But that's a whole different story. We begin looking in instead of looking out. Second thing is we begin looking back instead of looking forward. We remember the good old days. We remember how things used to be. And we begin looking back and saying, I want that, I want that, instead of looking forward to what God has in front of us. Listen, here's what we have to understand. The past is there to remind us of what Jesus has done. And for that, we will always be grateful. But it's designed to be a springboard for us to, to spring forward into what he wants to do next. And, and I know it's hard. Change is hard. But you know what? You, you, cannot, you cannot have growth without change. Now, I'm not talking about just church growth. I'm saying you personally, you cannot grow in the Lord if you are not changing. Isn't that right? Growth, by definition, requires change. And it's the same for us as a church, for us to grow. And listen, we're not interested in growing by, by attracting church people in here. We're not looking for a transfer of sheep. But to grow by reaching the lost, growth requires change. We have to look at things differently. We have to be willing to change the way we do things. We have to be willing to walk away from things that have been very dear to us in the past at times in order to embrace something that God wants to do that's even greater. Isn't that right, Pastor Jason? In order to reach that next generation. We can't, we can't get caught looking back. We've got to be looking forward. So unity is found in shared purpose. When we have our purpose, to, when, we, when we're focused on that and we understand why we're here, why we exist as a church, it keeps our eyes looking ahead at what God wants to do next. But unity is also found in serving one another. He said, talked about that in verses 3 through 7. How many of you believe Jesus was our greatest example? Of course, he was certainly more than an example, but for us, he was our greatest example. He said... Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. And one of my favorite chapters in all the New Testament is in John. I think it's John 17, where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. What, what humility he modeled in front of us. The servanthood to get down there and wash the, 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 the dirty, stinky feet of these guys that all the way there had been arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus finally got so sick of hearing all this quibbling about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. He said, all right, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to teach you what this really means because after all this time of following me, you still can't get it right. And he got on his knees and he washed their feet. 
And he said, listen, you are not greater than me. The student is not greater than the master. And if I'm washing your feet, what do you think you ought to be doing for each other? He made it very clear that we're called to serve. And he modeled that humility. He modeled that servanthood. There's a poem that I've loved ever since the first time I read it. And it's called I Wonder by Ruth Harms Calkin. Listen to what she wrote. You know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how eagerly I serve, I speak for you at the women's club. You know how I effervesce when I promote a fellowship group. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the callous feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew. That's the heart of Christ. He said, consider others better than yourself. Think of other people as more important. You know, that would take care of so many issues in a church. I heard one, someone once say this, that everybody has an invisible sign hanging around their neck that says, make me feel important. People want to know they're valued. And when you begin to put them first, they'll begin to listen to what you say. And then finally, this unity ultimately is found at the cross. Anybody ever heard the the phrase, the the ground is level at the foot of the cross? You ever heard that? You know what that means? It means that nobody is any better than anyone else when we come to the cross. That nobody is in any position to judge anyone else. That we're all equal at the cross because we all approach the cross as sinners. And it's not like, well, there's a really bad sinner over there and there's one that's not so bad over here. We all approach the cross as completely rebellious uh, uh, people who have rebelled against the creator of the universe and that is our ultimate sin. We have rejected God. And when we stay from the cro- stray from the cross, what happens is when we forget what the cross is all about and that we're all come to the cross as sinners, then we, that's when we begin to look down on other people. That's when we begin to get really self-righteous. That's when we lose focus of His example. That's when we lose sight of who this is really all about. The cross, that's where we come for repentance. He, he died on the cross to restore our relationship with God and to restore our relationships with each other. And if you have something against one of your brothers or sisters, it's time then for us to come back to the cross, to go to that person and make things right. We're all unified at the cross and at the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what gives us our goal. Because he paid the price on the cross for all mankind. How many of you know Jesus did not die on the cross to make us comfortable? He did not die on a cross so that we could sit on padded pews and critique everything that's going on on a Sunday morning or a, or a Sunday evening. Jesus didn't die on the cross that we could, so that we could get a little touch of the Holy Spirit and then go home talking about what a great service we had all the while ignoring our neighbors who were on the way to hell. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we could sing our songs and clap our hands and shout amen at the preacher and then ignore a world that is lost and dying and on its way to hell from uh, not, just, not just around the world, but across the street. Jesus died on the cross to save the world. Jesus died on the cross to save you. Jesus died on the cross to save me. Jesus died on the cross to save your neighbor. Jesus died on the cross to save that person at work that absolutely drives you up the wall. 
which that's really bad in my position because I'm the only one in the office through the week, so I don't know what that means. <laughs> which I do drive myself more crazy than anybody else. Jesus died to redeem fallen, wicked mankind, which describes who I was before Christ perfectly. This is what he has entrusted to us. We have been given a sacred duty. We have been given a sacred trust to lay our lives down for the cause of the gospel. See, if Jesus is our example, he said not only did he come to to serve But he said, but to lay his life down. If he is our example, that is not just about serving one another. It's about laying our lives down for the cause of Christ. It's about laying our lives down for the gospel. We've been given the sacred trust to lay our lives down so that maybe we could reach one more person with the gospel. We've been given a sacred trust to heal one more hurting person. We've been given a sacred trust to carry this gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. And it's time for us as the church of Jesus Christ to get to work on the task at hand together with with our arms linked and shoulder to shoulder saying we are one, we are together we will move forward, the enemy will not gain traction, the enemy will not divide us, we will keep our eyes on the prize, we will keep our eyes focused on the calling of God and we will see what God will do through Restoration Life Church somebody say amen in this place you know what? Pastor Jason, come on up and play something. I don't know what we're going to do, but, we'll, but play something anyway. Now is not the time to let someone else do it. There's so much that we need to do. There are ministries that we're, trying, that we're going to be trying to raise up. You know, I mentioned about our hospitality ministry. You're going to be hearing more about that very soon because we're getting some of the tools that we need now. You're going to be hearing about a, a, a prayer team that I want to raise up, not just for prayer through the week, but to, to be ministers of the gospel around the altars on a Sunday. You're going to be hearing about all kinds of things that, that come, and, and, and they, all the ideas, listen, all the ideas better not come from me because we'll be very limited on our ideas. It's not about what can Pastor Dave think of to do next. It's about what can the Holy Spirit think to do of next. And he may lay that that on your heart first. And you may be the person he says, I'm going to raise you up under the leadership of Pastor Dave. And he's going to help you. And he's going to train you. He's going to equip you. And he's going to help you. And then the Holy Spirit's going to uh, empower you. And and a new ministry is going to be born. Now is it not the time to look at everything that needs to be be done and say, well, somebody ought to. Now's the time to look around and say, this needs to be done. Lord, how could you use me to do it? God God has given us a job to do. He's given us everything we need to do it. Now's the time to get in the game. Now's the time to move forward under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We cannot afford to sit on the sidelines because we are running out of time. Each of us needs to participate in what God is doing in this church and around the world. Each of us needs to find his or her calling. And we need to stop making excuses about why we can't and get involved. There's something for you to do. I'm going to close by telling you this story. It's about a man in a church in Chicago, in Bill Hybels' church. Because he heard a ministry, a sermon, a message about using what you have to do something. 
And he thought to himself, you know, I don't really have any skills other than the fact that he was a mechanic. And he went to the pastor and he said, he said, Pastor Bill, he said, you know, I can't do much. I can't lead worship. I can't teach a class. I don't know. I can't do those things. But he said, you know what? I can, I can fix cars. So he said, he said, here's the idea I have. He said, but the idea is, the problem is with my idea is that I can't, I can't afford it. He said, my idea is, he said, I know that there are a lot of single moms in, in our community who they're driving around in these cars that need repairs and they don't have the money to get them fixed. He said, if the church can buy the parts, I can fix them. So he said, let's do it. And he started this ministry and you know, it might be just an oil change or it might be, you know, some other part that needed to be switched out. And these, he was taking care of these single moms. But, but you know what happens is when God gives a vision and something starts happening, it starts growing. And so pretty soon it wasn't just, just things like that, but, but pretty soon what began to happen was he, he went to the pastor again later. He said, you know, he said, he said, pastor, I've got to tell you something. He said, we're being terrible stewards of what God has given us. The pastor looked at him and said, what are you talking about? He said, well, here's what's happening. This lady comes in, she gets her cars fixed, and we put a new part in there. And then she's back in here two weeks later. He said, we're putting good money in these parts, and we're putting these parts on these old, broken-down, junk cars. And it's, just a, it's really a bad stewardship. He said, he said, we need to do something different. And he said, Pastor, do you think that there might be people in the church who when they went to get a new car, instead of trading in their old car, they'd say they might donate a car that they had that's still in good condition? And Pastor said, let's do it. And they started making that announcement and, and these cars started coming in. People say, you know what, I, I don't need the trade-in. They're not giving me what it's worth anyway. And so I'm going to keep the trade-in. I'll buy the new car and I'm going to donate this car. And there was one, little, one family, mom and dad, two little kids. And they, they, uh, they got together and they said, you know, let's, we're going to do this. We're going to buy a new car, but we're going to donate this other car. And so they did that and the family got all excited. But what they did was they went to the grocery store and they bought groceries and they filled up bags and they loaded that car up with groceries and donated that car. And they put a little note in the glove box of that car. And they said, we hope that this car is half as much of a blessing for you to receive it as it has been for us to give it. And you know what Bill Hybel said? And I've loved this statement ever since I heard it. He said, there is nothing like the church when the church is working right. There's nothing in the world like the church when the church is functioning the way the church is supposed to function. And listen, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe, you're gonna, maybe you're sitting here thinking, man, I can work on cars. And you think, I want to try to start something like that. Or maybe it's some other skill that you have that you never thought could be ministry related. I want you to know there's nothing like the church when the church is working right. And God can give birth to dreams and ministries that we, we can't even begin to think of yet. So my challenge for you tonight is, is really simple. It's what 
Pastor Barnett built the church on in Phoenix. Simple little statement. Find a need and meet it. That's how ministries are born. Find a need and meet it. Would you bow your head with me? Father, in the name of Jesus.